0: Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to share with you that I recently launched 365 Days with the Tudor Queens. This immersive learning experience is much more than just an online course about the Tudor Queens. Over 12 months in 2024, participants will come together and contribute to a supportive and inspiring online community of individuals who share in a unique learning experience one that will ultimately deepen their understanding of 16th century queenship participants will take part in an in-depth exploration and study of the lives of the Tudor Queen's consort and regnant, from the uncrowned Queen Margaret Beaufort to England's Virgin Queen Elizabeth I. I will be guiding participants every step of the way, but I'll also be joined by other Tudor history specialists, including Dr. Owen Emerson, historian and assistant curator at Hever Castle, renowned historian, broadcaster, and joint chief curator at Historic Royal Palaces, Dr. Tracy Borman, will deliver the opening address. The stellar list of contributors includes Dr. Nicola Tallis, Dr. James Taff, Dr. Elizabeth Norton, Heather Darcy, Dr. Emma-Louisa Maron, Gareth Russell, Dr. Linda Porter, Peter Stiffel, Dr. Valerie Schutte, and Dr. Estelle Perronc. For further details, testimonials from current participants, and to book your place on this unique experience, please visit onthetudortrail.com or nataliegriniger.com. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon community. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information information. Now is actually a great time to join because you'll receive two months free when you pledge annually before the 30th of June 2023. Join the Talking Tutors patron family to instantly unlock access to 138 exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. Now, on to today's episode. I'm so excited to welcome Alison Palmer, Kate McCaffrey, and Dr. Owen Emerson, Heaver Castle's brilliant curatorial team, to the podcast to chat about a very exciting discovery, a book of ours that once belonged to Thomas Cromwell. This has been heralded as the most exciting Cromwell discovery in a generation, if not more. Let's dive straight in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of Talking Tudors. I'm so excited today to be talking to Heaver Castle's Dream Curatorial Team, the Absolute Dream Team. So we have Alison Palmer, Kate McCaffrey, and Owen Emerson. So I might just say a quick hello to each of you. So maybe starting with you, Ali. Hello. Hello. Nice. Do you want to just maybe just briefly introduce yourself to our listeners, just so that they know who we're talking to today? Uh, Yeah, hello. So, I'm Alison Palmer and I am the curator here at Heber Castle. Lovely. Thank you. And Kate?
1: Hello. My name is Kate McCaffrey and I am a historian and one of the assistant curators here at Heber Castle.
0: And it's lovely to have you back. And of course, I think most of us know Dr Owen Emerson. He's been on a few times. So, hello, Owen.
2: Hello there. It's lovely to join you. Yeah, my name is Dr. Owen Emerson. I'm a social and cultural historian, and I work as the castle historian and assistant curator at Hever.
0: Lovely. And we are here to chat about a very exciting prayer book, and you can probably hear how excited my voice is, that once belonged to Thomas Cromwell. So when did you first become aware of this book?
1: Well, I think if I kick off on that one, this prayer book is very excitingly one of the same set of prayer books that I've been working with for the last three years now, which is crazy, three and a half years. And it's actually my research to do with my research that I spoke to you about Natalie, a couple of years ago, almost exactly two years ago, actually, weirdly enough. Um, and it's related to the uh, 1527 hard printings, one of which was owned by and Berlin, and one of which was owned by Catherine of Aragon and since I started my research with those three years ago I have been intent on when I have the time trying to track down the other copies of this same printing because they would have been printed in a batch so they weren't just printed as individuals and several of them still survive and I was aware that one was in the Wren Library in Trinity College Cambridge and I finally got round to last summer being able to arrange to view it in person. I'd looked at it online; it's beautifully digitised online, and so anyone can have a look through it. But going to see it in person is a whole other experience. And I was lucky enough to drag along my curatorial colleagues, Alison and Owen, and we went for a little curatorial road trip up to Cambridge and uh, saw it in person. And that's sort of where everything then sparked from.
0: Yes, that's so exciting. So so you went to, to see the book, but when did you actually make the connection between the book that's there in the Wren Library's collection and the book in Thomas Cromwell's very famous painting that I'm sure many of our listeners have seen by Hans Holbein? Uh,
1: so that was me. <laughs> so, yeah, we had this great day up in Cambridge looking at this beautiful book. And then the next day, on the Saturday, I happened to see the portrait of Cromwell and it was a bit of a ha huh moment. <laughs> Yeah, there's a little book sitting at the bottom that everyone's been sort of like puzzling over for many years. And I thought, oh, i have seen a book just like that. So, yesterday. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder if anyone knows anything, you know, if there's any theories about what the book was. So I sort of sat at home and Googled it over the weekend. But yeah, I didn't, think, I didn't come up with anything. And so I sort of come into work next day on Monday. Kate was supervising. So I sat down opposite Kate. And, you were hilariously oh, but, humble. She was I'm hilariously hilarious. humble. Kate metaphorically fell off a chair. <laughs> so I missed you, Arid, who also just sort of I don't know, some sort of research demon. <laughs> it was amazing because I've been trying to track down this book for two and a half years at this point, and obviously went to see it with my wonderful team. And then the next day for Ali to see this yeah. portrait, that's Alex. just pure serendipity. And then for you to make the incredibly astute observation that they look remarkably similar. I just will always remember her showing it to me. We was so humble about it. And I think said something along the lines of, you know, I don't, don't know if this is a stupid suggestion, but don't these look similar. And immediately, absolutely, that's the same book. And then since then, it's just spiraled what is a year long, currently, but is ongoing research journey um, for Owen and I to try and prove Alison's observation correct.
0: Absolutely amazing. I know when I looked at the portrait and then looked at the picture of the book, I just, it gave me the strangest feeling that I was like looking back in time or something. It was a very odd feeling. So it's absolutely incredible. For our listeners that maybe haven't seen the book yet, would you mind just describing it and telling us a little bit about it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So as Kate has indicated, this is. Uh, almost like a sibling of Catherine and Anne's fifteen twenty seven Books of Hours, it was printed at the same time by Germaine Hardouin. But what makes this book different is that we can assume that it it is in its original binding. And um, I say I say assume because there are a couple of years gap between the production of the book and the date that we know that the binding was placed on it and. This is really quite rare. The binding itself is quite unlike any binding that I've ever seen and the most experts have ever seen. In fact, it has puzzled a lot of people over many years. It's beautifully bound with uh, silver gilt edges to it. And it has a central boss on both covers, which are set with semi-precious stones, as we would call them today. They were originally thought to be jacinths, but we now know that they are garnets because we've had some some testing done on the stones themselves. They have beautiful silver gilt clasps. Unfortunately, one of them is missing, but it would have originally had two, which are again set with garnets. You, You mentioned there that it was... You know, quite an eerie feeling looking at the book, and I think it's because, and we're not hundred percent sure about this, but we we think it's one of the only, if not the only, object from this era that can be seen in a painting uh, or a portrait. I should add that survives today, and it is quite a remarkable feeling to know that you know, an object that we've all seen in this very, very famous portrait, which is hanging in the Frick, is still around. And we can still observe it as Holbein and Cromwell did. It's quite a remarkable experience, actually. And I would very much urge everyone who has the opportunity to come and see it when it arrives at Hever.
0: Yes, I would love to. I'm, I'm planning that already, Owen. You know, you know me. I can't stay away for too long. Um, And do you want to tell us a little bit about how Cromwell would have used his Book of Hours?
1: Yes, I think this is actually a really interesting question because it plays into what we know of how Anne and Catherine used their respective Books of Hours. So obviously to briefly recap what Books of Hours are, they are these traditionally Catholic scriptural prayer books. They were a very popular text, probably one of the first popular texts in medieval and early modern Britain and Europe Um, and it's confusing I think initially when we think of people like Cromwell and Anne who we associate more with religious reform and pushing for religious reform um, to the traditional church at this time owning and using and in Cromwell's case celebrating because it's at the front of his very famous Holbein portrait and that's a very conscious choice this traditionally Catholic book it's it's quite an odd Um, kind of dichotomy but I think when we reconsider the pace of these characters religious development and also the uh, path that it took in terms of I think Anne and Cromwell were both very happy to engage with a range of religious texts from across the spectrum of Christianity at this point so from very traditional Catholic texts maybe including these books of ours um, two much more reformist works that No and, and Palmer both uh, promoted. So I think they're both a case of exploring this variety of new religious ideas that are out there, but understanding the traditional religious ideas that have existed for so long, because they had to know the Catholic Church well enough in order to know how they wanted to reform it. Um, and I think that's a really important aspect to their religious beliefs that is illuminated through their use of these Catholic books of ours and for example we know for Cromwell himself uh, in an inventory of his uh, house at Austin Friars done um, in the mid to late 1520s he owned a surprising amount of Catholic uh, memorabilia really, he had crosses in his chapel, very decorated reliquaries, items that you'd associate much more with a traditional Catholic than how we believe. Cromwell to have been at this point. Um, and so I think these books offer a real insight into, again, the idea that religion at this point is very blurred. There's no really set defined lines and Anne and Cromwell and navigating that uh, to understand the full breadth of what's available before they, they pinpoint their personal choices. And the use of these Catholic books, I think, is really, really a testament to that. Uh, but I think why Cromwell particularly seems to have loved his book, no doubt, is this glorious binding and I think we cannot underestimate the power of this book not just as a religious text but as an object of art Um, and we're very sure that this is a big reason why it was chosen to be front and centre of Holbein's portrait of him. Um, Holbein was famous for for symbolically placing items around the people who he painted, nothing was there by coincidence and and this book definitely seems to be a conscious choice uh, because of its opulent binding.
0: And it seems to me that a lot of the the books of ours that survive are associated with women. So were they as popular with men at the time?
1: They absolutely were popular with men as well, but they seem to have had this special affinity with women. I think uh, for women in books of ours, these texts were seen as an appropriate outlet for female literacy and religious engagement. This is a time where women weren't encouraged necessarily to engage with religious debate nor were they necessarily encouraged to read more frivolous texts like novels. So a book of hours is quite a safe uh, category, I think, for, of books and uh, and uh, liturgy for women to engage with. But that does not mean that the men did not also enjoy and own books of hours. We know that many did, and these specific books of hours were written in Latin, but with um, non-specific gender forms, so they weren't written uh, for a female exclusive audience. Which I saw as soon as I read uh, Anne's book in the first place and so I knew that there must have been male owners of this book as well and it's wonderful to uncover one of them.
0: It absolutely is and you have mentioned Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn um, and I can see your poster behind there of your wonderful book and exhibition. So do you want to talk to us about the research that you've done and, and the connection that you've made between Catherine Anne, and Thomas Cromwell?
1: This has been such a journey, I will say, for the last few years, uh, from starting with this close study of Anne's book of hours, then discovering that connection to Catherine of Aragon, that she owned a copy of this same seemingly humble printing that, that has been overlooked for so many years in scholarship. And that's, as you kindly say, has formed the basis of our exhibition here at Heber this year and our accompanying book, which is to challenge that traditional rivalry that's always pitted Catherine and Anne against one another. And to question what else they had in common other than this prayer book, we now know brilliantly that they shared this prayer book from a really tumultuous time in their personal lives. This is around 1527, 1528, uh, by which point Anne has accepted Henry's proposal, so she knows she's going to become queen. But Catherine is still the queen of England, is still Henry's wife, and so we have this really awkward moment in their personal lives. Um, where Catherine Starr is firmly on you know, the wane and, and Anne's on the rise, but here they are united in this very peaceful medium of prayer. And so to throw Cromwell into the mix on top of that is just astounding and has been the most mind-blowing process of research and of trying to understand how this prayer book further illuminates the connections between the three of them, because we cannot forget that Cromwell is the man who brought both Catherine and Anne down. So we have, again, this this traditionally complex relationship between these three characters, and yet here they are all with a copy of the same book. It's just been brilliant to see how how many questions have come from our research that we're still answering. And I will say that our research is very much ongoing. Um, And honestly, when Owen and I were going through, which Ali will attest because we share the same office, we just were coming up with so many questions all the time. It was hard to, to answer them all at once and, and there's many still more to answer. but yes the fact that these three people owned a copy of, of this same book is is absolutely intriguing and I think indicative of a time um, that was hugely tumultuous but that Anne and Cromwell's stars were sort of joined together at this point as they were both rising in the late 1520s and we're increasingly sure or we'll have theories for, Uh, the gifter of these books, um, being very high up at court and likely being the king himself or Anne herself.
0: Yes, it is so exciting. And you're right, it it does bring up a lot of questions, doesn't it? You start thinking and imagining the scene where they're all using this book together, which is quite amazing. So we've talked about the fact that these books were often personalised for their owners. So how does Cromwell's book differ to Catherine's and Anne's? So
1: yes, so brilliantly, there are decorative differences in Cromwell's book as well, when you compare it to Anne's and Catherine's. And interestingly enough, he seems to fall on the uh, spectrum of decoration, slightly in the middle of the two. So Anne's remains the most opulently illuminated copy inside, she still has these extra levels of decoration added to her illuminations. We have extra red and blue corner decoration, oval borders which are inscribed, and none of that appears in Cromwell's copy. However, his illumination is more in detail than in Catherine's copy. So it's interesting that there's this kind of gradation of decoration that we're seeing across the three. Um, And that absolutely comes from the fact that these books, although they were printed, were hand illuminated and hand decorated. And so there were these kinds of levels of decoration that you could subscribe to. But obviously, the really outstanding part of Cromwell's book is its binding and the fact that it is original. And I'm sure we're going to um, talk about how we can, can claim that, but it's a great indication perhaps of what the other original bindings might have looked like because none of the original bindings survive on Anne's copy, Catherine's copy, other copies I've seen. Um, so our copy, for example, Anne's copy is a later 16th-century binding, it's quite plain brown leather that's been blind stamped and Catherine's copy is a much later 19th or 20th century um, binding and so it's a brilliant example to be able to think of what all of these books might once have been decorated like and and we're very sure that Cromwell's uh, was not the only one to be bound in such an opulent way if at this time the Queen of England was a recipient and the Queen in Waiting was a recipient. Although I'll just quickly stipulate that we Not 100% sure yet that the Cromer was the intended original owner for this volume. It is possible that it was meant for someone else initially and then has been gifted to him or rebound for him this portrait. And that's something that we're still exploring.
0: So on that point, do you want to talk to us maybe a little bit more about the theories that you have as to why these three prominent people at court owned the same book at this point, and perhaps there were others, obviously, that owned the book as well, and and also what insights that actually gives us into Catherine Anne and Cromwell's faith, and you've touched on this a little bit, but maybe if we go into that a little bit more.
2: Yes, yeah, so there there are a number of different theories as to who gifted um, the the books. None of them are provable yet. But I think what is clear is that as they were printed in a batch and as they were received by people in the same circles or certainly at the same court, and um, that they most likely had one gifter and that they were connected intimately to those people and of course that does help us slightly narrow things down these were incredibly expensive pieces of art and books uh, to purchase and the decoration afforded especially to Cromwell's was very expensive indeed so that again helps us to narrow things down further I think whilst it is speculative as Kate mentioned, I think Henry and Anne at this point are very likely candidates. And in terms of the, the kind of insights it can offer, as Kate mentioned previously, we, we do typically see Catherine as an incredibly pious individual and very much someone who adheres to the traditional faith, faith and and. Certainly Cromwell and Anne are more broadly understood to be of reformist leanings. But I I think it's really important to recognize what is acceptable at court at this point. Kate very briefly mentioned there the very Catholic appearance of Austin Friars. Reform in England at this point is not only in its infancy, but it is very much a prohibited activity. If you look at the actions, for example, of Cardinal Wolsey and then Thomas More when they are in charge, reformers are persecuted. So even with the understanding that people who have reformist views have an intimate and deep understanding of conventional faith, which again accounts for why they would all be owning the same book, outwardly, regardless of your leanings, you are going to appear as conventional as possible. Reformist books at this point are burned, and the people who owned them are at risk too. So, of course, anyone who is in a position of power at court, who is likely to have a lens of suspicion placed upon them, is going to appear As conventional as possible. So I I, I think we have to really look at the time these books are being produced, the context in which they're being consumed, to really understand why these individuals all shared the same volumes, even if they didn't share the same understanding of them.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a good point, Owen, because I think there's this sort of idea that reformers at this point, that there was a set doctrine that people were following and that all reformers believed the same thing. But of course, it was really fluid, wasn't it? And there there wasn't a set doctrine. There wouldn't be for quite some time yet. So I think that's a great point, that they're still interacting with traditional faith, but also perhaps exploring some new avenues. So I think this is the perfect kind of example of that, isn't it?
2: It really is. I mean, these people are as Hilary Mantel once said, walking blindly into the dark and they don't have a prescribed way to think. So the nature of reform is in debate. It is in those secret conversations that we know that Anne and Cromwell are engaging in. We know that Anne's reformist ideas had limits. We know that her beloved brother George often pushed the envelope of Anne's own reformist leanings, and at times she rejected them. So this is a ongoing process. It's not a formulaic prescription at this point. So yes, I, I think that's so important to, to understand.
0: Yeah, I think it's a wonderful lens through which to to look at their spiritual lives more. So fantastic what you guys have discovered. I love it. So tell us a little bit about the provenance of the, of the book and how it is that we still have it to this day. So the book
1: was donated to Trinity College, Cambridge in 1660, so the year of the restoration of monarchy after the English Civil Wars and interregnum. And it was donated to Trinity College and then what later became known as the Wren Library, where it's been held for the last 400 years in brilliant condition, which is why we're so lucky that it survived intact and in the way that it has been and still exists today. But it was donated in 1660 by a woman named Dame Anne Sadler or Sadlier, yeah, and she spelled her name at that point. And she was the wife of Rafe Sadler, Junior, I should say, if people recognize that name, because Rafe Sadler's grandfather was also named Rafe Sadler, and he was the close friend and protégé of Thomas Cromwell in the 16th century. Uh, Sadler rose up in Cromwell's household, Cromwell was his mentor, and they became very close friends. Sadler managed to long outlive Cromwell and escape his fall. And the drama around his fall, much like Cromwell had with Wolsey's fall, his old mentor. And Sadler died in, in the late 16th century as one of the richest common Englishmen in the country. He really cemented his fortunes. And during that time, he had bought a house at Standon and he had built a manor house there um, on what was uh, property already existing. And it's in that property at Standon that we see his grandson, Ralph Sadler, and his wife, Anne Sadler, residing later in the 17th century. And we know that there's an inventory in 1623, taken of Standen, which is at this point occupied by Ralph Sadler, Jr. and his wife, Anne. And in that inventory is a brilliant collection of items that they owned at the time, including in their long gallery, a picture of Cromwell I think it's written Cromwell's picture which very well may be the Holbein portrait itself or a copy of this one with the book displayed in it and inside their chapel although they do not have a detailed record of the books they owned there is one book which stands out to us when we we're researching and it's described as a gilt psalm book in the chapel and considering that the most recognizable feature of Cromwell's book is it's guilt-binding, it's this brilliant silver work around the edge. It would make absolute sense if that was indeed that book, um, especially considering that the Holbein portrait which depicts it may well have been hanging in their long galleries. They may have had uh, not only the portrait, but also the book depicted in the portrait. And so it makes total sense that Anne Sadler was aware of the significance of this book and saw it worthy of donation as she comes to the later Uh, years of her life after her husband has died in 1660 and she gives it to Trinity College which was the alma mater of her father, Sir Edward Coke, who was a very famous prominent lawyer in Elizabeth I's reign and she was so close to her father. She donated so many books uh, to his colleges, places he studied, uh, including in a temple in London. But Trinity College was where he first did his undergraduate degree and she donated several books there, including this one in 1660. So she obviously knew it was going to be kept in safe hands and for good reason, because she must have been aware of its provenance. And I'm sure Owen can expand on on that provenance, especially going into the 16th century.
2: Yes, I mean, you've brilliantly um, detailed the it's sort of afterlife and how it, how it got to the red. And I very much sort of focused on the 16th century part of, of, of the research and, and how we can sort of link it more firmly to Cromwell. Of course, we have the remarkable painting in the Frick. And there are actually three versions, or three prominent versions, I should say, of the Holbein painting. And there is not a consensus within art history as to which is the original. There is the painting at the Frick, which I think most people know it hangs either side of the fireplace there with the famous Thomas More. But there's also a much rarer and very infrequently seen portrait, which hangs at Burton Constable up in Yorkshire. And yes our historians cannot agree which of those is the original holbein although they have done some sort of spectral analysis on the the frick painting and you can see changes actually in the underdrawing of that painting, which very much suggests that it was a work in progress rather than a pattern. Um, I'm not aware that any such work has been done on the Burton Constable portrait, so it'll be very interesting to compare those. Third hangs in the National Portrait Gallery, but dendrochronological uh, analysis has proven that it is early 17th century. So that is a a later copy of the, the Frick or Burton Constable original. So we knew knew that Rafe Sadler had a portrait of Cromwell and Alison actually did a bit of research into Thomas Cromwell's will um, and the executor of Thomas Cromwell's will was Rafe Sadler, who he was very much close to and very intriguingly, he left all of his books to Rafe Sadler in his will, which was uh, a bit of a eureka moment when that was discovered. We then did some investigations into the stones. Now, I mentioned earlier that originally the stones were believed to be jacinths. Uh, we now know that they are garnets. Very unusually, however, they don't look like garnets. <laughs> it's quite strange. Garnets have quite a deep and sort of meaningful redness to them, whereas the stones that we see in the in Cromwell's book almost are like port coloured. They are fairly distinct actually from the, the typical colour that we know garnets can be. So it's not out of the question that when they were bound into the book, they were believed to be Jacinths. Certainly when they arrived at the Wren, someone inscribed in the cover of the book that they were Jacinths at some point. So yes, we we looked into Cromwell's connection to these particular stones. Obviously, he had been made uh, Master of the Jewel House, and that is the central subject of that painting. It was created in, in 1532 and really is, a, I think, an homage to that moment, that 1532 moment. Uh, it was wonderfully described as Holbein's year. So I think there are a number of aspects in that painting which are really revealing. Uh, for example, the fact that there is a, a very prominent turkey rug next to Cromwell. Uh, of course, Cardinal Wolsey was famed for mass importing these rugs into England. Uh, he had many hundreds in his possession at the time of his downfall. The the cloth in front of Cromwell is green. And this is a nod to the border green cloth, which was a, sort of a colloquial term for the people at court who were responsible for the royal finances. The table is strewn with things that relate to this position. He has a a black coin purse, scissors, a quill, and most importantly, or the second most important nod, I think, is the letter he is uh, next to, which is addressed to uh, the master of the jewel house. Uh, So this is a clear indication of what this this painting is celebrating. And I, and I think the fact that we have a bejeweled book on the table is of no coincidence. This is very much a visual cue, I think, to perhaps who gifted uh, the book to Cromwell, uh, but also the fact that it is covered in jewels. This is not subtle on Holbein's part. He didn't do particularly subtle messages sometimes, uh, and this is a good example of that, I think. So yes, we did have a lot of help along the way, and not least from Dr David Pearson, who noted that there were hallmarks on the uh, silverwork of the book. And this led to a rather frenzied uh, attempt at trying to identify these hallmarks. They didn't appear after a huge amount of searching to be English or Dutch, Flemish. I mean, we went through a whole host of hallmark archives to try and identify them. However, we were able to land on France. And there was also a maker's mark on the binding. And again, we had some help from Kirsten Kennedy at the Victorian Albert Museum, who had a look into this maker's mark for us and And she came across a very particular name, uh, and that was one Pierre Mangot. And this led to quite the revelation. We did some research into Pierre Mangot's life, and we discovered that he originated from Blois, which immediately set some alarm bells ringing, because, of course, who was at Blois for a lot of her time in France, but Anne Boleyn. We found out that very early in his career, he was patronised by Louise of Savoy, who was, of course, uh, King Francis I's mother, and who we believe was a great influence to Anne Boleyn uh, at her time at Francis's court. And very importantly, we know that Mango then moves in 1528 to Paris. And this is when Francis almost establishes Paris as the the main court location and you see an influx of artists and also goldsmiths at this time centralizing more uh, centrally in Paris because of course this is where the most fruitful work is going to be commissioned from with the court being more centrally located and it was at that point that we were able to get in touch with Michelle. Bimbonnet Privé at the Louvre, uh, who was an absolute expert on Pierre Mangot. And she was able to confirm that the date stamp dated between December 1529 and December 1530, which was a massive relief to us because throughout this whole process, we hadn't been able to rule out the possibility that this binding had been placed on this book in homage to the book in Holbein's painting. It was one of those tantalising and nerve-wracking questions that sort of hung over our research as we were trying to recover the provenance of it. So to have confirmation that this item was created by the royal goldsmith Pierre Mangot in Paris at the right time and in the right circle. One of my favourite finds was locating that just a few months after the creation of this binding, Pierre Mangot was creating a gold chain for none other than George Boleyn, who had been on embassy in Francis's court. So it's all of these little fragments of information conjoined together that give us this almost irrefutable, I would say now, uh, provenance trail that takes us Not only directly to Cromwell's door, but right to the heart of international grandeur and uh, expertise. Pierre Mangot is a prolific goldsmith, not only working for Francis I, but creating fantastic and ornate pieces for King Henry VIII too. Thrilling and exciting just doesn't cover it really.
0: (laughs) No, what an extraordinary story. And and just the, the fact that you've been able to bring all these threads together is quite amazing and join the dots. It's extraordinary detective and research work, isn't it? Which is which is wonderful. So I'm sure that everybody listening wants to have the opportunity to to visit the book and see the book if they can. So what is going to happen? And how long will it be on display for?
1: So the Cromwell Book of Ours will be with us here at Heber Castle until November. So you will have from June the 8th until November the 10th, come and see this book at Heber. It is replacing Catherine's Book of Hours, which goes back on 4th of June to New York, to its home at the Morgan Library. And on the 8th of June, we will be launching this Book of Hours from Cambridge as Cromwell's Book of Hours, and you'll be able to see that here in situ, next to Anne's, until November. So it's really a brilliant, second half to our exhibition really to introduce this new item breathe some new life again into the field
0: that is absolutely extraordinary and and so what is next for the heaver castle team you're always doing such amazing work i imagine you've got something else in the pipeline oh, there's so much
1: going on and this research itself will continue and continue and um, Owen and I are hoping to publish this at some point as well uh, into a journal article or two and there's so much that we're constantly finding out what Owen mentioned about the, the jacints that we used to think were Jacinths being found to be garnets that's only a very recent uh, discovery that we've made post-writing the book that we've written alongside uh, the Cromwell launch uh, next week we also only very recently had the confirmation of mango so that was, as Owen said, a real overhanging cloud to confirm before we went um, to press with this that was the most brilliant revelation so there's so much more to find out still with this research but in the castle itself we've got a lot happening as well we're reiterating the entire castle (laughs) at the moment so we just launched this year our ground floor uh, this time next year our middle floor or at least Half of our middle floor will be launched and that possibly the, the part that we're most excited about because that's us recreating the Berlin suite of apartments. So hopefully something that they would recognise if they were today to walk into those rooms. The whole castle is under a big period of change and we're already planning our next exhibitions for 2025 um, and that will be released more in as we go uh, in the future but that's a very exciting one uh, that will be obviously focused around. Um, our favourite, Boleyn.
0: Wonderful. And is there a, a book that will accompany the second half of the exhibition, with Cromwell's book included, or is that a separate thing?
1: Yes, absolutely. We have written a book to go alongside this, I and I'm writing this book to a very tight deadline as this research was ongoing, um, and so there are already new things that we wanted to add to it, but it's too late; it's gone to print. So it will be the first instalment um, to accompany the loan. It's a little booklet. Um, that will explain our research and the journey that we took to get there. That will be available uh, when we launch the exhibition or this part of the exhibition uh, next week on June 8th. And that will be available in store at the Heber Castle shop and online as well. So that will be hopefully the start to opening this big gateway of, um, of new research coming in and more publications going forward.
0: Wonderful. Well, a huge congratulations to all of you. This is amazing work that you've all done. And I'm sure all our listeners will agree. And thank you so much. I know you must have a lot of media stuff happening. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk tutors with me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tutors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind the scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.